0: Get ready to sashay into an episode of Let's Get One Thing Straight, the series that fearlessly penetrates the layers of the queer experience. I'm Monk DC. I'm Javon. And we're here with our Straight Boy
1: co-host Aaron and Coach Fred and some amazing guests to spill the tea, throw some shade, and shit glitter all over the ever-evolving landscape of fabulousness.
0: Get ready for laughs, love, and lots of faggotry.
1: Allies, you're in for an education and a good time. So grab your rainbow flag, strike a pose, and let's go deeper, daddy, into the queerest journey of your life.
0: We're safe spaces and faces where we're rewriting the script and embracing every shade of the rainbow. Hey, what's up? What's good, y'all? It's Sunk TC, and we are back with a very special series that has been near and dear to my heart for some time. Uh, this is a series I've been working on, uh, actually, from the beginning of Safe Spaces and Faces. I have been meticulously planning and working with a wonderful group of guests to um, accompany us on this series as we dive into queer culture. The purpose of this series, Let's Get One Thing Straight, Is to educate the children first and foremost, because we definitely have a younger generation that needs representation. And we're also here to encourage all of our allies and to provide them with a little bit more insight into our plight, into our history, and uh, into our whole experience. And for anyone else that happens to find this conversation, we hope that we can impart something into you that helps you to understand our perspective. And as always, if there's anything in this series that we may misstep or inaccurately represent, please reach out to us and correct us. We're human. We are not perfect. We just want to represent. So we do have a special guest tonight, a very good friend of mine, Kit. Kit, I really uh, I want you to introduce yourself, and I would like you to talk about the importance of representation in our community.
2: I am Kit. I am an aspiring queer comic scholar. So I look at comic books, particularly superhero comics, from the U.S. through the lens of queerness and queer theory. I also look at a lot of fantasy and science fiction through that same lens. Historically speaking, speculative fiction like fantasy and science fiction and subversive mediums like comic books... ...have been a really potent way for queerness to be represented through metaphor, if not directly. Superhero comics in particular have a lot of queer subtext and queer undertones and a lot of other forms of minority representation. Some of the earliest, most famous American comic book writers were Jewish. Um, We have a lot of amazing people of color who have worked in comics. So that's primarily what I like to look for, because queerness has been underrepresented and very taboo for centuries. So finding out how we represented ourselves before we could be open and out is really important to me.
0: Mm. I love that you were able to to take passion for comics and for sci-fi and for all of that, and honestly find greater purpose in it because in doing so, you're able to show that, yeah, we've been here. So I think that's beautiful melding of passion and lived experience. And I have to say, I appreciate you guys for Being willing to be a part of this conversation, because in a lot of queer spaces, you don't see a lot of straight men. And I've been in a lot of queer and a lot of queer Black spaces, and there's not a lot of straight Black men who are willing to take that stance. So I really appreciate you doing that on behalf of your community and on behalf of ours and that intersectionality that lies within. So thank you for taking that stand and being that voice and being that light and being that representation. That's really appreciated.
3: Appreciate it,
0: man. Seriously. Yeah. So I've got a lot of information that I want to share tonight, but just know that queer history is so comprehensive that I could not, ab- there's no way that we could discuss this in one episode, in two episodes. We we could have a series of queer history and we could talk about it all year long. But what I want to do tonight is just highlight some of these pivotal moments, these key figures and and really present an undeniable argument that we have, damn it, we've been here. At the beginning of every episode throughout this series, I am going to provide some definitions that pertain to the episode and just to school the children a little bit. Each set of definitions throughout this series come from different resources that you can find on the web, different glossaries that you can go to just to find out a little bit more beyond what we're able to discuss in our podcast. On this episode, Pride in Progress, LGBTQIAAP Plus History and Intersectionality. So the following words and their definitions are from the Glossary of Terms provided by Parents, Families, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, also known as PFLAG, the It Gets Better Project, and the Safe Zone Project. The first isn't really a term. It's more of an acronym, and it's our acronym. And you see it a lot, LGBTQ. I-A-A-P. Fred, without looking at the outline, how many of those letters can you name?
3: Lesbian, gay, I think it's bisexual, trans, queer. Oh, I don't know the I. I tried, and I probably messed it up there, so forgive me.
0: You're on a roll, though. And I also, this is something that we're going to talk about, but there has been such a rapid evolution here, and I know a lot of people have, for so long, been just seeing the LGBTQ. But yes, lesbian, gay, Bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning. Um, I've seen it represented as queer questioning. I've seen it represented as queer or just questioning. And then intersex, asexual. Sometimes you'll actually see another A, aromantic. And then pansexual, sometimes you'll see polysexual, right? Also with the a's, sometimes you'll see ally represented. Depending on the resource, depending on the location, depending on who's using it, you might see those letters slightly. But that's what the plus is for. So the plus just is just showing that we are, in fact, a spectrum, just to familiarize yourself with those. And uh, the second term, actually, Fred, you and I talked about the Kinsey scale. you remember mm-hmm. that? Okay, so it was a scale developed in the 1940s by a guy named Alfred Kinsey. Mm-hmm. It's like this this idea that sexuality is a spectrum, okay? Okay. So on that spectrum, it places an individual's sexuality or sexual orientation on that spectrum, zero being exclusively heterosexual, six being exclusively homosexual. What it's saying is, is that sexual orientation is fluid. It's not a binary, and it's a spectrum. Every person falls on this scale. Not everyone is entirely heterosexual. Not everyone is entirely homosexual. But there is a vast array of endless possibilities in between those two extremes. That is the earliest, in my knowledge, account of this idea of this tangible spectrum that we can almost quantify. Seeing it and being able to understand it as being on a spectrum, in my opinion, makes, makes a whole lot of sense. Because in my experience along the way, I have had relationships and encounters with men that fell all over this spectrum. The damning thing is, is if people were really and truly aware Mm -hmm. that they fall on this spectrum, I think we might have more grace for ourselves and for one another.
3: When you and I talked about it, uh, I'm a visual person. So I I advise anyone listening to this that's doesn't understand the scale, Google Kinsey scale, Kinsey, K-I-N-S-E-Y scale. And when it shows you where you are on the demographic, you begin to realize, and you look, I'm 45. So you begin to look back at some of the sexual encounters that you had and you realize they weren't all this sort of black and white. You've experienced and experimented some things. And so the scale makes sense based on our conversation that we had that, yeah, I've experienced some things. I've done some experiments here and there. And some people like to Deny it, you know. Oh, I was drunk, or I no, dog. You you had the feeling, so you you did a little something. Just admit that you did something. Now maybe that wasn't your thing, right? But you, that's where the scale makes sense. Is that you were curious? If most people would at least allow themselves to go there and say, "Yeah, my curiosity," I tried that before. You know what I'm saying? It would make sense. Instead of people drawing these battle lines in the sand and saying, no, I never did that. That's what most people are portraying, which is a facade. We've all experienced, or I should just say, experimented in in many areas. And most people that can be real with themselves will understand the scale.
0: Absolutely. And I appreciate your perspective on that because I can only see it through my lens. So, of course, it makes sense to me. But hearing you talk about how it makes sense to you from your perspective is so validating. Yeah, because I'm gonna be honest with you, man. I've experienced some things on scale. Like, look, I'm gonna tell you right now. I'm not, it's, it's not like I just had
3: one. What do you guys? What is? Uh, you know, it's not just one of those things. I've done these things,
0: and it was it was out of curiosity. What is it? You know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think it actually promotes understanding and respect for one another. So, mm-hmm. uh, so moving along, intersectionality. That is so important. And so, first of all, intersectionality is a term that was officially coined by Kimberly uh, Williams Crenshaw. So, the term refers to an overlap of uh, social categorizations or identities such as race and ethnicity, sexuality, gender, disability, geography, and class, which exist in an individual or group of people that can contribute to discrimination and disadvantage. Essentially, it's the crossroads where your experiences and your experiences of oppression or your experiences of prejudice or your experiences of what have you, that's where they overlap. That's what intersectionality is. And all throughout history, history in general, intersectionality is ever present. And I think it's very important that we talk about this because without intersectionality, without diversity, you wouldn't have queer history Mm. because Black, Brown, and non-white people make up the core of queer history. And you'll notice throughout this series, we talk about intersectionality and it's time that we normalize that conversation more than ever. And kind of tying into intersectionality are two more acronyms that you might hear or see throughout this series or this episode. I say BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C, it's an acronym for Black Indigenous People of Color, or and People of Color, excuse me. The reason why this is important is because it acknowledges specific histories of Black and African, Latino, Latina, and Latinx, Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander, or API, and Native and Indigenous people without collapsing them all into one homogenous category. It's a little more of a a broad way than just saying people of color. It validates specific existence. And then very similarly, QTPOC, queer and trans people of color. Queer and trans people of color uh, experience discrimination at higher rates. Um, And we're gonna do our part throughout this series to highlight those disparities, that plight, of those queer and trans people of color, those black, indigenous people of color throughout this series. Because again, without them, we wouldn't have queer history. And then I would also uh, like to define the term heteronormativity. And that's the assumption that everyone is heterosexual and that heterosexuality is superior to all other sexualities. I think throughout the entire history that we discuss, you have to keep in mind that, and even now, we still battle every day and we're confronted with heteronormativity and cisnormativity every day in the queer experience. So, those are just some words that I just want you to keep in mind just for this episode and for this series as we move along. All right, Kit. So, listen, before we get started and actually diving into some history tonight, I think it's really important to highlight the ever-evolving language throughout queer history and also uh, highlighting the ways in which we should go about finding and researching our history on our own.
2: So I have three main criteria for looking at sources just in general, and I'm going to be using as my primary example for this Michael Bronsky's A Queer History of the United States. It's a comprehensive kind of history of the U.S. through through a queer lens. And the first thing that I would like to point out is anytime that you're looking at a historical summary or a book about history, there's no such thing as an unbiased perspective. It can be presented at, in neutral language, quote unquote, but everyone has an unconscious Way that they're trying to present things. Michael Bronsky, what I really appreciate about his book is that he tells you up front that his framing device for the narrative history that he wants to tell is exploring the social and legal concepts of privacy and how they influenced queer culture in the United States, like sexual deviancy, quote unquote, in Puritan US before the US was the United States. How isolationism in the Old West allowed for a booming queer culture, how we get to legal concepts like don't ask, don't tell, and how Roe v. Wade being passed on the basis of right to privacy affected future queer uh, rulings in the Supreme Court. So it's important to just always be looking for what is this historian trying to tell us? And what is the point that they're trying to make? Like having a bias or a framing device isn't inherently a dangerous thing. It's just something to be mindful of when you're consuming any kind of information. It's part of media literacy. The second thing to keep in mind is how drastically language has evolved with regards to queerness. Queerness was just defined as not normal for the longest time. It was just, what is not heterosexual? What right. is not cisgender? And everything was very fluid. We have a lot more terms now that are much more distinct. Like you have asexual, which is dim- different from demisexual. You have aromantic. It's, you have a lot of, I think the kids are calling them micro labels, which makes me sound ancient,
0: but. Let's face it, we're getting there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we're. We're no longer baby gays. (laughs)
0: We're no longer baby gays.
2: (laughs) But yeah, and, and a lot of people are reluctant to speculate on the queerness of historical figures. Like, you get the debate every so often of, was Freddie Mercury actually like a gay icon or was he bisexual? Was Oscar Wilde gay and his marriage to a woman was a social cover or was he bisexual? That kind of thing. It's just important to understand that things were really they couldn't be clear cut. It was just you're different and we don't really care what flavor of different you are. You just are right. And the third thing that I want to address is looking at primary and secondary sources. I don't love a queer history of the United States. I I think it misses the ball in a lot of areas Michael Bronsky is is a respected activist, Uh, I'm not trying to take that away from him, but he is a white, cis, gay man, and it definitely comes across in this queer history of the United States. It
0: it does. It absolutely does.
2: I wouldn't normally recommend that book, except he has an amazing index of primary and secondary sources. Where you can go and find these relics of queer culture, these significant parts of our history, and look at it for yourself. You should always be looking at those sources. And you might find things that you don't expect. One of the primary sources that I look at a lot for my work, personally, is with downcast gaze aspects of homosexual self-oppression, which is a political pamphlet from 1974. by Andrew Hodges and David Hutter. I found this pamphlet fascinating. It's a pamphlet from what I guess we would call uh, far-left queer activists. The thing is, as, as much as I think that these central ideas are incredible and worth talking about because it's Mainly about how we as queer people can perpetuate queer phobia and assist in our own oppression. It's written by two white Englishmen in the 1970s. So there's racial slurs, there's terrible stuff in there, um, which you have to take with a grain of salt and and also just throw out the window completely. But you see You said
0: I'm sorry, you said how we perpetuate oppression and contribute to say that again.
2: We perpetuate our own oppression and Uh contribute to queer phobia. Wow. The full text is available online. You mentioned intersectionality. So much of the queer movement was broken up by racists, white people who would not give space to queer people of color. Misogyny drove lesbian separatism.
3: Of course. Which
2: led into trans-exclusive radical feminism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You see how this breaking apart of people along these different lines created this need for intersectionality. So it's just important to look at those primary sources to see how we got here. And what was driving us, what was driving the political movement, because so much of pre-Stonewall activism, where there was activism, was a fight between let's stay hidden, let's be complacent and just Mm. keep quiet, don't rock the boat. And we deserve to rock the boat. Like, we're here. We shouldn't have to hide.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I want to highlight with this episode are those people that said, fuck it, we're not hiding. Because without those people, we wouldn't know our history. And let me tell you why. Because it has been a very purposeful act of eradicating and erasing our history. Because queer history has also faced erasure. I'm going to get right into this. So first of all, I just want to highlight, like I've said, I'm going to say it again. We've been here, damn it. I would be doing a disservice not to mention the fact that queer lives have been here as long as humans have walked the earth. And queer lives are going to be here that can be found even in ancient culture, from ancient Greece to ancient Rome, indigenous cultures, ancient India, Pacific Island cultures, all across the globe. There is recorded history. There are texts. There are fables. There are hieroglyphics. There are religious texts and deities that all have these these themes, that all uh, have these...
2: A lot of it is underlying. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of it is subtextual. Granted, a lot of it is also serving a different purpose. There are a lot of very old Christian texts that reference intersex people often. But yeah, you can you can find these sources in the most unexpected places. It's not just like, oh, Sappho was ancient Greek poet who wrote right. about her girlfriends. It's you really can' find it in any culture.
0: So that just kind of solidifies even more so that we have been present. And while there have been different times and different cultures where there was more acceptance, there has been so much systemic oppression that we've faced as a community. So I want to get into that a little bit and just start as early as the 20th century, because the Roaring Twenties was actually a really booming time for the gay community. There was a lot going on around the globe that was affirming. I actually didn't know this, but in 1924, the Society for Human Rights was founded in Chicago, Fred, in Chicago, 1924, one of the earliest known LGBTQ rights organizations in the United States that was advocating for the rights of gay men and lesbians. I'm going to be honest. I didn't know that. I'd never heard of the Society for Human Rights before. So I thought that was really cool to see that representation as early as 1924. It's kind of sad that here we are in 2024, Mm -hmm. 100 years later. And we are still grappling with everything that, I mean, I have to wonder if whenever they started their advocacy, if they thought, man, in a hundred years, we're still going to be fighting this shit.
3: When I look at that and I see 1924 and you understand because 24 is before the Great Depression, this lets me know that not much has changed. It tells me that this was all, like you said, you had already been here and them creating a society was them putting their flag in the ground saying, hey, look, yo, we here. And obviously now that's a different time. We're talking about 100 years ago. They didn't have all of the stuff that we have now, the access to information. I was going to ask you guys a question. In the 60s and 70s, you know, I can look to my grandma and my mom for actual information that you probably won't find on Google, that they can tell me the context of a situation of a Martin Luther King, a Malcolm X and all that. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go to Google. I can literally be like, yeah, yo, granny. So what?
0: Mm-hmm. I feel like y'all don't have that. Who do y'all go to? For me, it was it was the old gays at the club Um, and getting into drag like my drag mother. My drag mother was ancient. I mean, to be politically incorrect, they call themselves the old faggots, you know, because we've reclaimed that term. But it's not as readily available as just being your mother or grandmother. No. You've got to find that community to be introduced to it.
2: There's also the fact that we were very much robbed of our elders with AIDS, Mm -hmm. with the way that AIDS was allowed to become the crisis that it was. I worked as a maid for a while in 2019 and early 2020, and one of my clients was um, a bisexual man. And the last time I saw him was just before we were going into shutdown he was telling me how worried he was about people not taking COVID seriously because he remembered what happened the last time people didn't take the plague seriously. And he lost almost all of his friends from that time to Mm -hmm. AIDS. I really can't understate or overstate how detrimental that Mm -hmm. was to our community to have lost so many and so much so Really, it is the survivors that we go to and mm-hmm. and our books. And, you know, unfortunately, we're going to be losing people from that generation as time goes. You know, it's the nature of time. I worry that with the increased isolation of online spaces mm-hmm. and the lack of a real community that you can go to in real life away from your keyboard, and just go to somebody. I, I worry that we're going to lose a lot of our sense of community from that. I know that the internet is great for connecting people who don't have a physical community near them or have to be in the closet for whatever reason. But we lose a lot by not having that immediate, hey, I can come to you for anything. That's yeah, true. Sorry to get heavy,
0: but... No, I mean, that's, that's a reality <laughs> of what we face. And, you know, as... As a person living with AIDS, uh, because actually my first diagnosis was in stage AIDS, I am now HIV undetectable, but I was ignorant to a lot of what happened uh, during the 80s. I don't want this to sound, I don't want to say that I wear it with a badge of honor, but the reason why I'm unashamed is because, oh God, because I get to walk a life that someone else didn't get to live. And knowing that so much of our history, like you said, was lost. So I appreciate you bringing up that point because that's very, it's very unfortunate because so much could have happened differently and we'll get into that, but so much could have happened differently to prevent that. But, um, so thank you for asking that question, Fred. Um, even though we lost a lot of our history, I'm thankful for people that um, whose work have stood the test of time. Um, very well known, renowned poet, Langston Hughes, and although he never really explicitly disclosed any kind of sexuality or sexual orientation, the queer undertones in the subtext in, in his work are just undeniable. And honestly, that entire movement of the Harlem Renaissance was just an emergence of queer artists and performers throughout the 20s and 30s, and was just a beautiful display of queerness, honestly. Um, Bessie Smith, Empress of Blues, openly bisexual blues singer, who became one of the most popular and highest paid performers of her time. So she addressed both heterosexual and homosexual relationships in her lyrics. And really, if you think about it, in the 20s and 30s, such a scandalous time to be alive and do that. So just want to celebrate that. The Harlem Renaissance was truly I I like to say validating because I think these moments in history have been validating for the people that got to experience and live them in in the middle of the oppression, in the middle of the prejudice, in the middle of everything, and in the middle of having to be hidden, having to be silent, being able to kind of break out of that, uh, that's so validating. And honestly, throughout that time, from Paris to Berlin, all across the globe, there was kind of like this artistic movement uh, throughout this time that really allowed for a queer presence. I really want to focus on a little bit pre-stonewall activism and pre-stonewall movements. And when I say pre-stonewall, I'm referring to the Stonewall riots of 1969. So many times this riot in 1969 it's like, "Oh, that's the beginning of the queer movement." No, it's not. And that's a common misconception. Now, it's it's a very pivotal moment. Don't get me wrong, Because I think it perpetuates that we weren't here before then. Yeah. And and I don't like I don't like using that as the defining moment in history.
2: I think it would be apt to say that Stonewall is kind of the spark to the powder keg. Right. Like there the groundwork was there. Queer people were present, were active. The Stonewall riots are post-World War II. Queer contributions to World War II in the U.S. in particular were huge. A lot of people were being introduced to queerness through military sor- service, essentially. There was this growing sense of, like, we can we can and should be able to live our lives openly like anybody else. There was also the backlash. Um, Stonewall was not the first gay club or gay meeting place to be a target for police violence. That was not the first time Stonewall was targeted for police violence.
4: Right.
0: It
2: was that moment of enough is enough.
0: And, you know, I think it's interesting to, for whenever you said it wasn't the first, you know, gathering um, that met uh, police violence. I want to talk about this. This is really interesting. And this is actually a figure that was unbeknownst to me, but there is a slave born in 1858 by the name of William Dorsey Swan, one of the earliest known individuals in the United States to identify as a drag queen and calling themselves the queen of drag, right? And even led queer gatherings. So listen, William Dorsey Swan was born into slavery, one of 13 children in Maryland in 1858 around, we don't know for sure. Swan gained his freedom after Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, right? According to Channing Gerard Joseph, Swan was arrested in police raids numerous times. And the first documented case of an arrest for female impersonation in the United States was on April 12, 1888. And it was at William's birthday party. And according to the Washington Post, he was arrayed in a gorgeous dress of cream-colored satin. Swan also worked as a sex worker, and organized some of the very first ever drag balls in DC in the 1880s and 1890s. So please know that he came to slay, not to be a slave. <laughs> I like it. You like what I did there? Okay. Like so but just know that these these balls were really significant in social events because it provided a place for black and marginalized queer communities to gather. And this is so interesting. I found this so great. So, um in the, the, in the drag community, in the, uh, there are houses. So one of the earliest houses, if not the earliest house, was the House of Swan, named after William Dorsey Swan. And it was comprised of all former slaves and rebel drag queens, right? He was arrested, Swan was, for keeping a disorderly house, which really just meant that he was running a brothel, or well, that's what they accused him of. But really, it was just the gays having a ball. They were probably fucking, but... It was a ball. Okay. But we do what we do. Let's be honest. Um, And I also thought this was interesting that Swan was arrested for stealing books from a public library. But from what I was reading, I guess he tried to argue that, or someone argued on his behalf that he was just trying to educate himself and the people around him. And I guess they ended up letting him go or erasing it from um, his file or whatever, so, so expunging it, that was the word. So I just thought that was really interesting. But other than that, there's not really a whole lot we know. But I was just like, wow, an emancipated slave from the 1800s who comes out is like the first drag queen in America. That is so beautiful. Like if that doesn't speak to the resilience of the queer community, I don't know what else does. Because damn it, that says we are here. And we don't give a damn.
2: Not only the resilience of the queer community, but also how much of a pillar black and indigenous and people of color, how much of a pillar they are to queer culture and how much (laughs) how much we we owe to the people of color within our community. They really are the forefront of the movement, like culturally, politically, it has always been queer people of color leading the charge for
0: change. Listen, and you know, we always say Black history is American history. Well, Black history is also queer history, hands down. So, and actually 1912, a gentleman that many know as Bayard Rustin. um, And Bayard Rustin actually was a civil rights worker. And he really honestly didn't do a lot for gay rights until the 80s. But he's very important, in my opinion, um, to acknowledge because... First of all, he was fighting for civil rights back in his HBCU days in the 1930s, okay? And this man was a key advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. And was fundamental in organizing the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And I love this. He was that voice in the ear of of Martin Luther King Jr., who was the proponent for nonviolent peaceful demonstrations and advised and directed Dr. King, Later in his life, he did get into some queer activism, and I thought this was actually quite honorable of him. They actually tried to put him in a book that was called In the Life of Black Gay Anthology. He actually turned it down, saying that he really didn't believe that he was at the forefront of the rights movement because he was silent for so long. But I think it's important to talk about him because he was out, and even though he didn't really make a fuss of it or participate during that time he was out, we knew he was there and he was visible. He was so fundamentally intertwined eventually between just the civil rights movement in general, and then eventually into the gay rights movement. So I think it would be a disservice not to mention his contribution to our history. Quick question. Um, Quick
4: question. What is the history of, or the origins of the word drag?
0: I'm glad you asked that. So um, from my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, Kit, but it's a little debatable, but essentially um, it comes from Shakespearean theater or theater in general, when men would have to dress up like women. I've read diff- different things where oh, the gowns or the the petticoats would drag on the ground. So they called it drag for that reason, or DRAG, dressed as girl, dressed as a girl. I've heard many different things, but essentially it comes from old theater, Shakespearean theater, things like that, because the women couldn't play as actresses, so men had to do it.
2: I can't really speak to the etymology of drag. I'm not super well-versed in drag culture. I enjoy sure. drag shows, but it does have origins in old theater, especially because for a very long time, if you were a woman and wanted to be in theater, that was associated with sex work. So if, if you weren't outright banned from working in theater as a woman, it was a very ignoble profession. It was very looked down upon. So there is that rich history of essentially cross-dressing, but what we would now call drag.
4: One more question, or uh, well, actually two more, but one more uh, about the, about the drag thing. Why such a focus on? Well, well, I get it about the men and the women being banned, so the men had to dress. So I get that, but it, it seems that if, like like now there's such a focus on the men dressing as women versus the women dressing as men. Drag kings are
2: super underrepresented in culture. I can only assume it's similar to why there's such a focus on transgender women as opposed to transgender men, where it's because of our misogynistic culture. It's subversive to go from maleness as a
4: position of power to femaleness. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. That's definitely very interesting. One more quick question. You know, while I was locked up and incarcerated, I did time with Mark Scarelli, right? And Martin Scarelli, a.k.a. Farmer Bro, you know, he's uh, famous. As a matter of fact, he's back in the news right now, but um, he's famous or infamous for purchasing the rights to a AIDS drug. Right. You know, a AIDS prevention drug. I just wanted to just touch on that a little bit and just just maybe get your thoughts on um him or a person like him who's exploited a life saving uh, medicine or a life helping helping medicine for his own capitalistic endeavors.
3: Before you answer that, I just want our audience to know that this young man was able to purchase this drug and price it so high that it makes it impossible to get the drug.
0: First of all, let me just say this. My where is it at? This is Simtuza. You can look it up right now. Simtuza is five thousand eight hundred dollars a month. This bottle. So I don't give a fuck what he was doing, honestly, because Big Pharma fucks me every month. Yeah. Five thousand a month. Five thousand eight hundred and like $38, so, thirty eight dollars. Absolutely. So 30 It's one month, one month. My um, insurance covers close to 60,000 a month because I don't pay for this. My insurance covers close to sixty thousand dollars uh, a year just for me to live. So big pharma is the real oh, corporate. But as far as what he was doing no i don't think that's right because number it's bad enough that big farm is doing it but then when we also have people that are buying up to supply to such a life-saving drug just for the purpose of profit that is that's in my opinion that's as low as you can go
2: he's a symptom of the problem and right absolutely sure he got punished for it but you're still paying or your insurance is paying right. 60k a year and right. nobody's going to jail for that. It's extortion plain and simple because your option is, well, figure it out or die. It's easier to scapegoat an individual than to change a system, unfortunately. I could go into like some positive healthcare history. I don't see his name mentioned here, but a really important name um, in 1920s and 1930s Germany is Magnus Hirschfeld. He led the Institute for the Science of Sexuality or the Institute of Sexology from 1919 to 1933 in Germany. Mm -hmm. And this institute um, was instrumental in compiling research about homosexuality, about intersex conditions, about transgender people at a time when it wasn't really talked about. They even conducted some of the first gender-affirming surgeries in the 1930s. Trans people have been here and have been getting gender-affirming surgeries for a very long time. I didn't know until very recently that we were having gender-affirming surgeries in the 1930s.
0: I didn't either. Um, I definitely thought that was something more recent.
2: Yeah. Unfortunately, because this is pre-Nazi Germany, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld was a gay Jewish doctor. He was targeted by the Nazis. He was able to He was exiled from Germany, but he thankfully did not die in the atrocities. But the Institute was burned and we lost so much research about queer queerness and scientific data because the Nazis targeted that information. They wanted to erase homosexuality as much as they wanted to erase the disabled and Jewish people and and minorities in general. I do want to point out how much has been intentionally erased and how much actually Absolutely. existed
0: for Absolutely. us to know
2: about this institute, even with such a targeted attempt at erasure.
0: And it, and it's a good thing that we do. And I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't realize that we had been performing gender affirming surgery for so long. That's sexually encouraging that they've been able to at least look into and try to validate people over the course of history. That's that's beautiful. So moving into the 50s and 60s, 50s and 60s were really interesting. There were a lot of challenges and persecutions faced by our community. A lot of morality laws started popping up around this time. A lot of arresting of patrons in different bars and things. Offenses like lewd behavior, cross-dressing. And these officers were just entering these establishments. Arbitrary arrests, harassments, intimidation. Being a queer individual and going out to bars and clubs during this time it was risky because you're going to be targeted more than likely. All across the United States at different establishments that supported um, queer individuals, you saw these raids. One that I would like to mention specifically is the Gene Compton's Cafeteria Riot in the 60s, 1966-ish. Although it wasn't a club or a bar, Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco's Tenderloin District, it was a gathering place for the trans community. Now, a lot of the, the trans women that were in the area, a lot of them were sex workers. And during the day, this was their refuge to kind of go and eat and fuel and rest and rejuvenate and kiki with the girls and get the, you know, just kind of get the down low. It was, it was their reprieve. It was their haven. There was a trans woman who was tired of the abuse and an officer came in and it said that she threw a cup of coffee in his face and it sparked a riot. In a really unprecedented moment for trans resistance to police violence. Trans lives have always, always been targeted. They have always been targeted. You know, during this time, it was not uncommon for police officers to use undercover tactics to infiltrate uh, our spaces. A lot of times they would pose as members, queer members, and they would literally identify and engage in deemed illegal activities just to entrap the queers anything to solicit an arrest um it's important to realize that during this time just being present and visible it was it was dangerous and i just want you to realize how many cities how many states how many places around the nation during this time actually had anti-gay laws anti-queer laws many cities had specific laws criminalizing same-sex relationships you had uh, laws criminalizing cross-dressing and just any real, real expression of queer identity, specified words like sodomy, lewd conduct, or lewd behavior, lewdness in general, uh, gross indecency, unnatural or lascivious acts. And you might know a couple of these cities, but a couple of the big cities where these were prominent, you had New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, New Orleans, DC, Boston, Dallas, Atlanta, Detroit. It was endless, Uh, and I may be jumping ahead of myself, but did you know that it was actually illegal until two thousand three? It was illegal to have gay sex until two thousand three. In two thousand three, was that Lawrence v. Texas? Yeah, Lawrence v. Texas in two thousand three. The sodomy laws for it was sodomy laws and the laws of sex for pleasure um, were overturned, and it wasn't until two thousand three that on the federal level that queer sex was even allowed.
4: Quick question. Uh, Can you define sodomy real quick for the audience?
2: So sodomy is very vague legally and it's vague on purpose so that it can just be tacked on basically when you need a charge against somebody you want to put away. Um, I think, strictly speaking, sodomy can be boiled down to non procreative sex
0: acts. So oral
2: could be considered sodomy. Anal is definitely considered sodomy. Yep.
0: So, any kind of sexual activity was illegal until 2003 if it wasn't for the purpose of procreation. Okay. All right.
3: So, I did not know that.
0: That is true. Isn't that crazy? So, That leads us up into 1969. We come in, enter the Stonewall riots. The Stonewall Inn, okay, so I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the gay bars in New York City, uh, they were owned by the Italian American Mafia. That was a very common thing. So the Stonewall Inn was an Italian-American mafia-owned gay bar in Greenwich Village in New York. Um, and this is actually something that started in the early hours of June 28th 1969. Um, the police pop up like they have been doing, like they've been known. It wasn't the first time at Stonewall. Wall, but this time, baby, the girls were pissed. You feel me? And they were fed up. Uh, so what happened was is they started resisting arrest. And I've heard a lot of different things about, you know, things being lit on fire, trash cans being lit on fire. Um, I've I've heard all kinds of stories about what happened at Stonewall. Um, but basically what I think what's most important to know is that it led to as a, a long series of fighting and rioting, and these demonstrations lasted from the 28th every night until July 3rd that year. Over the course of those days, over a thousand supporters showed up to fight against not only NYPD's tactical patrol force, but the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 9th precincts. So yes, Stonewall became a symbol of LGBTQ resistance and resilience. And so what happened was, is a year later, there was a celebration called the Christopher Street Liberation Day. And it was a march they held. It was that march that was the very first Pride March. So keep in mind, even though we call them parades today, it's, it's not supposed to be. It's a march. We're not parading because we're celebrating. We're marching because we're honoring the fight. You have to understand that. And I think we have lost that in our community a little bit. But we have to remember that it's a march. And that is actually where that march originated, from those riots. So that's why Pride Month is in June because the Christopher Street Liberation Day was June twenty eighth because of the Stonewall Riots.
3: Wow, you just taught me something I didn't know that. Um,
0: and there's there's legend here that one of one of our earliest mothers, Marsha P. Johnson, threw the first stone or threw the first brick. But if I if my memory is serving me correctly, the actual account of what happened was that Marsha actually showed up after um, the riot had already started. But Marsha was a Black transgendered woman and drag queen. And the P in Marsha P. Johnson was always said to stand for pay it, no mind. (laughs) That was her middle name. Pay it, Marsha, pay it, no mind Johnson. Marsha P. Johnson not only modeled for Andy Warhol, but considered herself to be the mayor of Christopher Street, was the co-founder of GLF, which is the Gay Liberation Front. And she founded, with Sylvia Rivera something called STAR, which was the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. And they fought alongside of um, ACT UP. And they were a radical political collective. They sought to provide housing for the homeless, for LGBT youth and sex workers, because let's face it, many of them were homeless and sex workers themselves. And it was within those houses that they found community. That's how they built their family. Um, you heard me mention Sylvia Rivera. Sylvia was a Latina transgendered woman who fought alongside Johnson in in the fight against police oppression and um, in forming the Gay Liberation Front and really being that uh, fighting force for our entire community.
2: I just wanted to make a brief mention, um, circling back to the activism regarding your homelessness. That Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were central to. Even today, homelessness is a significant, a significant danger to queer youth, particularly. 40% of homeless teenagers are queer, have been kicked out for being gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. It's still an ongoing issue, very much so. So it's important to know that, that work that they were doing was vital, is still vital. I think uh, a lot of steam was lost from the mainstream gay community for a little while after we got marriage equality, but there's still so much social stigma that we have to combat and so many serious issues, the rates of addiction amongst the queer population, the rates of homelessness, the rates of domestic violence that doesn't really get Addressed because we don't have as much support. So I, I just want people to keep that in mind. And if you're looking for a place to start your activism, honestly, helping volunteering at homeless shelters, helping with housing projects is Absolutely. an incredible way of getting involved with the, with the community.
0: And unfortunately, it has it has plagued our community. Homelessness has for 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 decades. Um, I'm going to take the opportunity to highlight a couple of key figures after Stonewall. First of all, um, I know a lot of people hear about figures like um, Harvey Milk. I mean, either even for me, um, Audrey Lorde and Edith Windsor were familiar names. But um, if you didn't know, I want to tell you about Harvey Milk really quick because um, I think this is... Um, I would say because his story was one of the first queer representations that I saw in my life. Harvey Milk became involved in politics and activism in the Castro District of San Francisco, uh, which was an emerging hub for queer culture, of course. He became the first openly gay elected official in California. And that was after co-founding the Castro Street Fair, which actually was a celebration of queer culture and community. He was elected in 77. And then a year later in 78, he was actually assassinated. And the guy, Dan White, who killed him was convicted of voluntary manslaughter instead of first degree murder. And I didn't know this. The term Twinkie defense was used during this time. And this is, God, this is so interesting. I don't know if you've ever heard this term before, but basically the defense argued that he had consumed so much sugar that he was acting irrationally and accidentally shot him. I believe that this was one of the first
2: cases where the so-called gay panic defense right. was mm-hmm. at least implied, if not outright used. Trans panic is still used as a defense. I think I think gay panic is still, but it's it's not as prevalent. But certainly gay panic and trans panic have been used as legal defenses to justify murdering queer
0: people for quite a while. Um, there was also, and I didn't know this, but they called it was it the Purple Scare, the um, Lavender Scare, the Lavender Scare. That's it. Yeah,
2: yeah. It was. Um, if I remember correctly, it was kind of within the same time frame and panic as the Red Scare, because for whatever reason, homosexuality was associated with communism. I understand that there's a quite a large segment of queer communists now. Right. I could be I could be called one of them, but it certainly wasn't the case back then.
0: Right. I just want to highlight a couple more people. I'm not going to dig too far into Audre Lorde's um repertoire here, but Audre Lorde was a black lesbian poet, feminist, essayist and civil rights activist who often talked about the concept of intersectionality. Although she didn't coin the term, she definitely pioneered this conversation around the concept. She argued that one cannot address sexism without considering how it intersects with racism, homophobia, and other forms of discrimination. So really just being that champion in that conversation along the way for us was very influential. And this is someone who was born in 1934 and lived until the 90s. So having that early representation, I think, is such a beautiful thing. So if you get a chance to look into her work, she has some am- an amazing collection of work. That really kind of explores different themes of love, identity, activism, and just emotion and intellect. I mean, it's so much more than just sexuality. And I really think she redefined the erotic, not just as sexual, but as deeply felt and creative and live. Yuri Kochiyama, born in 1921, lived until 2014. Yuri was a Japanese-American activist Not only was she a civil rights and racial justice activist, but Yuri was influenced by her own experience as a Japanese American who was interned during World War II. And it really just fueled her fire for fighting against discrimination. And get this, she worked alongside of leaders like Malcolm X, right? And I I didn't know this. And I think that what this does is it really shows Again, how intertwined the civil rights movement is, all of these marginalized communities, and and how our queer community is just interlaced so beautifully with all of that. Yuri was present at Malcolm X's speech at the Audubon Ballroom on February 21st, 1965, when he was shot and killed. In fact, Yuri was the woman who held him as he laid on the floor dying. She is known as the last person to hold him before he was lifeless. And that to me spoke volumes to her character and to the greater purpose of our movements and our movement. Her activism was all about intersectionality. It was all about recognizing interconnectedness of various struggles. And I think that now we need to reinforce that more than ever, because we're at a place in our society where these, this rhetoric is becoming so divisive that if we don't stick together, I'm afraid that it would actually infiltrate us and just be even more divisive within our own community. I would uh, implore you to look more into her life, into her work. Um, There's actually a documentary film called Yuri Kochiyama, Passion for Justice, a 1993 film that talks about her life. And she even went on to win a posthumous, not win, but receive a posthumous recognition for her activism with the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 14. I think that it's imperative to highlight those that really were our trailblazers because it was during all of this time that we were dealing with the police raids. We were dealing with the backlash. We were dealing with, You, I mean, yes, it's bad now. We still face a lot of backlash from this uh, white American Christian nationalist platform, but it was tenfold. And I think we were talking about it earlier. I think one of the biggest examples of just how oppressive that platform was, was in fact the emergence of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. You know, we talked about it a little bit, but, you know, when it came about, it really was a mysterious illness. And it was absolutely the church's contribution to stigma that I believe delayed the help that we needed from our government. It was labeled as a due punishment from God. Behind the pulpit, they were exacerbating fears in the church. It got so bad that religious leaders were actually refusing to provide religious rights or burial services to age related illness deaths. There's a lot of conversation about the government's involvement in the exposure of the virus. But I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, per se, because then you start getting into conspiracy theory. But I will say that there was an absolute lack of government intervention. In fact, it implemented policies that discriminated against people living with HIV and AIDS. But I want to talk about the ACT UP Coalition, which is the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. ACT UP was formed in '87. And their whole purpose was to be a direct action advocacy group to raise awareness because the government just wasn't fucking doing it. They weren't doing anything. In fact, we were dying. Nurses wouldn't even enter the rooms with us to be near us. We were dying hungry and dirty and alone. ACT UP literally had to go outside of the United States, literally went to Canada to source AIDS medication because they were collecting All of these different supposed drugs that were supposed to help, that they were trying to get off the black market, they were making their own list, ACT UP was, of drugs that were working or weren't working for the community. They were administering them and they were setting up these secret pharmacies amongst the community where you could go and find these drugs because the FDA wasn't doing shit about it. So we literally had to go to Canada to get an HIV drug just so we could keep ourselves alive. And it wasn't until then that the government decided to get involved. Once we began to shed light on the government's slow response, we actually started seeing some sort of help from the government. So ACT UP was absolutely pivotal. They staged die-ins where they would go into churches and lay on the floor and die, literally lay on the floor and die to protest the stigma coming from the church because they weren't even being honest about teaching the preventative measures like condoms and how that could actually help. Instead, it was just no sex at all abstinence. And that was because of the church.
3: Well, and let's be clear, this was only 37 years ago. This is a hop, skip, and a jump of like yesterday. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I just want to crystallize that for people. That I get it, that we're in 2024, 1987. Seems like eons away. It is not eons uh... away. It's only 37 years ago that they had to create a coalition simply because the government was not getting involved enough. And I I want people to understand because we have a lot of social media and people are trying to act like they're woke and all that. And it's like, bro, let's understand something. A lot of stuff that we're talking about has been fought and fought and fought. Mm -hmm. Like, don't act like it's new. It's been there. So that's why Mm -hmm. I like this podcast. That's why I teamed up with you, dog. because I want to be able to be a part of that that says, hey, the history is there. Let's not act like it didn't happen and try to
0: erase it. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, man. I appreciate your input. Um, And you're right. It wasn't. And even moving through the 90s, moving through the 90s and into the 2000s, you do see countries like South Africa decriminalizing homosexuality during this period. And then, like I mentioned earlier, 2003, Lawrence v. Texas, that ruled that all sodomy laws were unconstitutional, which basically legalized same-sex intercourse or just sex for pleasure. But it's not really until 2011 that you see the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which really gave uh, queer people this opportunity to serve openly. I can't speak to it. I didn't live it. But I have heard stories of the abuse, of the, um, the molestation, of the ridicule, of the prejudice, of the discriminatory behavior in the military because they couldn't speak out about it because you don't ask, you don't tell. 2015, uh, we've got the Obergefell v. Hodges case in 2015, but that was the day that the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. 2020, we've got uh, Bostick versus Clayton County, which upheld, or the Supreme Court held, that an employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgender violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This is so monumental because it's... Realize, guys, it's only been four years since we have had this beginning phase of equality and acceptance in the workplace. Four years. That's it.
2: And it's really it. an incomplete victory because it is. so many states have right-to-work laws, and as long as they're if you can't prove you were fired for being gay there's nothing you can do you can still very much be fired for it just they need to cover their tracks a little bit better
0: and like georgia we're right to work state florida's a right to work state yeah yeah so definitely so we still need more comprehensive protection against our community or for our community moving into 2021 finally in 2021 the U S state department introduced a policy allowing individuals to choose non-binary or an ex-gender marker on their passports, which I believe if I read correctly, wasn't implemented to like a year later. And then there was this ban on transgender military services that was actually reversed. So Trump enacted the ban in 2017, 2021 rolls around and Biden reverses that. So allowing trans individuals to openly serve in the military. So, All the way up until 2022, 2023, you have to realize that even though we have come so far, we have so far to go. And the one thing that I would like to ask anyone that hears this, anyone that wants to be an ally, anyone that wants to adequately speak on behalf of our community, educate yourself. Please educate yourself, because um, books, memoirs, literature, those are mirrors of society. You can find our history in texts all over. We've been here. We've been present. and, And damn it, it's because we fight so hard to be here. We fight so hard to be in spaces where we go. We fight so hard just to be valid, to be recognized, and to be acknowledged. And we fight in the midst of... This conversation that we're invalid. If you look at what's happening in Florida and you see how we're being challenged still head on, it shows me that, at least in my opinion, that a lot of our progress is an appearance. We've been given the appearance that we're gaining equality. Mm. When in reality, we're given crumbs. We're given we're given bits and pieces of legislation that point toward a more equal space for us. But it's only just enough to make us feel like we're getting that equality. But there's always that avenue for the oppressor.
2: The infrastructure is fragile, and we can't get comfortable, essentially. We can't get complacent because everything that we've gained, unfortunately, we've seen we can lose it just as fast.
0: Before we wrap this up, we've—I know—we've covered a lot tonight, and there is so, so much more that we could talk about with our history. But personally, I have a couple of documentaries that I've watched. I want to challenge my co-host, you Kit, and anyone that's listening. The first one is "Paris is Burning." You may or may not have heard of it or seen it, but "Paris is Burning" is a documentary that delves into the ball culture in New York City. It was filmed in 1990. And it kind of explores race, gender, and sexuality. And it gives a beautiful yet tragic real look into the lives of ball culture, the kind of like that homelessness epidemic that we talked about within our culture. Another one is called How to Survive a Plague. It chronicles uh, the AIDS yeah. epidemic and the activism that emerged in response. <laughs> and it really talks about ACT UP that we talked about earlier. It gets into everything that ACT UP had to do to go outside of the United States to get the antiretrovirals. It talks about all of the the efforts of ACT UP and persuading the church and the government to get involved. It highlights um, the death and destruction of AIDS on our community. And even more so, it talks about the victories that we've had in medicine and AIDS. Another one would be Pray Away. It's a 2021 documentary that follows the ex-leaders of a conversion therapy camp called Exodus International. This one is very, very close to my heart because when I was outed in 2010, I was told by the church that I was attending that the only way that I would be welcome back in their church is if I got on my knees and I went to Exodus International and I went through the program. And I think it's funny that years later, the um, the president of the program came out and said, all of this is a farce. I'm still gay. And so were the people that came through my program. And this documentary was putting that man and some of the people that led those teachings back face to face with the students that went through the program. And they unhash all of the trauma. They unhash all of the hurt. It's called Pray Away. I urge you to watch it. Especially because conversion therapy is still legal in many states. Yeah, Yeah, conversion therapy is still absolutely legal. It is legal in almost every state. And the states that have laws against it, it's really just against it for minors. Mm. Um, That's the only restriction. Some states restrict it for minors. But it's still very much um, a form of therapy and legal. Another documentary, we talked about Marsha P. Johnson. It's a 2017 documentary called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. Really kind of gets into Stonewall and gets into her, uh, her life and, and tragic death. In fact, uh, she, was, she was a sex worker. She was uh, murdered. That's still kind of in the air, but we're pretty sure she was murdered. Her body was found floating in the Hudson River. But that is an amazing documentary I think you should dive into. And lastly, 1984 documentary before Stonewall just kind of examines life, uh, queer life in the United States before the Stonewall riots.
2: Some people may know this um, educator already, but I am a huge fan of Dr. Eleanor Janega. Mm. His last name is J-A-N-E-G-A. Dr. Janega is a medievalist, does a lot of content about medieval England and medieval Europe, um, and focuses pretty much exclusively on sexuality and gender, has a video on one of our earliest records of a trans sex worker in medieval England. Um, And Dr. Yanaga just published, just released a book uh, called The Once and Future Sex. Just incredible stuff. And if you're a history nerd, and if you want to know more about um, queer history, especially in the medieval era, where you wouldn't, necessarily expect to find it. can't recommend anybody
0: more strongly. I appreciate that recommendation. I learned so
4: much tonight, man. There was a lot, a lot of history discussed. And it's important to acknowledge that, you know, the the world and our country and the people who had great effect on progress in this country, they're not a monolith. You know what I mean? They're, they're not just Black. They're not just white. They're not just Christian or just Jewish or just uh, agnostic. They're they're not just women, they're not just men. The word intersectionality is a major, major, major word and can be overlooked. And we have to understand that the world we live in is only getting better because of people who are taking risks, putting their lives on the line, losing their lives, and allowing the life they live and the loss of that life to be a catalyst for change. You know what I mean? And uh I've learned about several people tonight that definitely um enlightened my understanding and helped me gain more respect. I appreciate it. I definitely appreciate being a part of this podcast, man. It's definitely um insightful and enlightening. You know, I hope I hope our listeners, especially our straight listeners, straight men like myself who 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 tuned in have gained something. And are open to think about other, other, other facets of our life. You know what I mean? We're not here to convert you or to or or to win you over to, to become a, a, a gay rights activist or, or whatever. We're just here to have a conversation. Hopefully you can gain something from it. And if you've been an asshole to someone who's part of the community, hopefully the conversation helps you not be an asshole after this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Very well said. And I appreciate that, by the way. that's I, I appreciate that. That's very noble.
1: Being a Black gay man and Speak hearing on it. some of the history that has gone on is, I think it's so important that I personally hear it, but also that other young gay people hear it, because I think that over the years we have lost the the kind of the appreciation for it and the struggles that people have gone through and the trauma that they went through. Um, I think that honestly, if we knew more about the history, we would be more, um, more willing to act. Mm. And I think that we ourselves have to kind of get some of that courage and some of that power that they had so that we can continue to make history so that mm. we can continue to live and thrive so that the next generation is more comfortable in who they are and they have a history to look back on that they can be proud
0: of. Mm. And I'm glad that you brought that point up in that perspective because Absolutely. I think the more familiar we are with the struggle that those that came before us had, the more that we begin to realize that we are writing the history that our future generations are going to be able to see and learn from. And -hmm. we have an opportunity to make sure that what we create doesn't get erased. Yes. So um, I think that that is very important. And I'm glad you brought that up. All right, y'all. So wherever you are tonight, if you are finding your way, finding your identity, finding your place in the queer community, I encourage you to look deep into our rich history and see those that have come before you that um, that you can identify with. See the struggle, see the plight, see the celebration, see the victory, and be encouraged and know that there is a place for you, there is a space for you. And if anything, you can start here. We are safe spaces and faces. If you need a shoulder, if you need... Some guidance if you need a friend, turn to us. At the end of the day, that's our purpose. So be encouraged wherever you are and know that uh, victory is possible. Victory has happened and victory will continue to happen. But it's not going to start until we realize that we have to uphold the legacy of those that come before us. So, with that being said, no matter where you are, uh, make sure you love yourself a little bit more tonight and make sure that as you go about your day, as you go about your week, that you be the change that you want to see. Until next time, I'm uncTC. Thank you for
1: opening your space to safe spaces and faces.
0: We hope that you too get involved in
3: the conversation. Remember to like, follow, and share our social media.
4: Tell us your story, share
3: your experience, and together we can make a difference.
0: Until next time, Be the change you want to see.